it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because I, I spent the first, like all my childhood, assuming that everyone was just going to sort of become the same like goldenish color as everyone just interbred with everyone else. And, and what I'm seeing instead is like everyone moving in the direction of glomming off in these more isolated communities, becoming more different from each other instead of all kind of the same. It's just yeah. so weird. And we then of ran, course, speciation is going to happen when people get off. We ran a big study on this. And one of the things that's most correlated with fertility rate, at least in the U.S., is xenophobia, mm -hmm. which means that we actually will likely preserve independent ethnic groups. It's just the opposite of what I expected. Like for the majority of my life, it's so weird. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue here is, like, also, if you look at a country like Brazil or Cape Verde, what happens is actually, like, even in, like, a genetically homogenous admixed population, there's still variation. Mm. And so people will still look different. And so if they're sorting based on physical type, there will be, like, kind of, like, precipitation back out, if that makes sense. Would you like to know more? Hello, we have a very special guest on Basecamp, Razib Khan. He is the CSO of Generate, which is a really, really cool startup, basically enabling people to use a lot of genetic te technology and information that they haven't been able to use yet. Plus, he is the proprietor of Unsupervised Learning, which you can check out on Substack. Talk about deep dives on really cool genetic histories and all sorts of stuff. You had really better check it out. If you don't know about it yet, you're in for a treat. You can also just check out a lot of things that he's working on at RazibKhan.com. And he's probably one of the most famous in the world communicators on human genetic stuff when it comes, especially on the spicy side. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, whenever, whenever people say that, I'm just like, why aren't there more communicators? I mean, it's like, you know. Well, I'll tell you why there are more communicators. There, I, I'd say there are a number of other communicators, but I think a lot of the other communicators in this space go a little too hard on the race stuff. Like they seem to have a vested horse in the game, which pollutes their ability to give the message. Whereas you come at it much more neutrally, which I think is why you're such an effective communicator. And to that end, one thing I wanted to ask is where do you think the future of humanity is going genetically speaking? Like, are we going to see a die off of ethnic groups? Are we going to see new ethnic groups? Are we going to see you know, who does well in this coming world, what's going on? Yeah, it's complicated because, you know, these sorts of linear projections, not necessarily linear, but just like, I mean, obviously they're exponential too, but, you know, like in 1900, if you had asked me this, you know, the, the theory was like all the colored races were going to disappear because the mm -hmm. fertility of, of white Europeans was so high and they were conquering all the continents and settling everything. Obviously that's not what ended up happening. <laughs> So it just goes to show you that these like very, very long-term projections. So for example, like people are like, oh, there's going to be like 5 billion people in Africa in 2100. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, I'm exaggerating. I think it's closer to like 3 billion or 4 billion. Okay. I just don't think that there will be. I think that those are overestimates probably. And, you know, the transition will be faster. You know, since like about the 1980s, the UN has actually consistently over-predicted population growth. Mm -hmm. Because as you guys know, a demographic transition has been happening everywhere. Yeah. And fertility has been crashing everywhere. And so it just depends on where. So in any case, I think like Peter Zahan says, oh, the Chinese people are going to disappear. I'm like, look, they got a low fertility, but like there's 1.4 billion of them. I mean, you know, they're not going to like, they're not going to disappear. Okay. There's like 20 million Jews. And like, we're not like, oh, the Jews are going to disappear. You know, yeah. the reason the Jews are not going to disappear is ultra-Orthodox Jews have a high fertility, right? So they're still going to be around. If you read Frank Herbert's Dune, they're still around. You know, <laughs> so you just need some of them that really want to reproduce and, and wait. Who themselves. are the Jews in Frank Herbert's Dune? They work with the Betty Jesuit. Yeah, oh, really? That's fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, they're still around. They're still around. Well, do you know Kuzat's Hadarak is Hebrew? No, oh. no. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I had that's no yeah. idea. Yeah, I mind blown. That. Mind blown. Are, are wow. we are we going the Tylaxi route with our family? <laughs> you know what? I so. so I have a I have a friend. Do you know what an axolotl tank is? Yeah, of course. It's what became the Tylaxi females. They basically turned them into birthing tanks. Yeah. So this is what so I, have, I have. I have a friend who got her eggs, and she has like she produced a lot of eggs. And so I was like, you would be a really great axolotl tank. <laughs> 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 okay, how long till we get axolotl tanks? Like, do you see some groups basically getting rid of women when we get artificial wombs? Yeah. Yeah. So I do think in terms of what's going to happen, I do think diversification is probably going to be a thing within mm. 100 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you will have, like, sex of humans that are naturals, others that are probably going to do, like, legit transhumanism. Um, I mean, assuming our technological civilization continues, you know? Right, right. And then I do think there will be... You know, I mean, look, there's going to be like groups of gay men, actually just groups of people in general, like women as well, because they don't want to give birth. You know, they don't want to go through the body, all that transformation. They're going to use oxalotl tanks. The main issue is, I don't think they're going to be necessarily, many, you know, they're not going to be like, you know, dead or like brain dead, you know, plexi women. Yeah. But but the point is like, no, the point is just the actual, bags and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The issue, the issue is always like, all right, actually, you know, this is going to be fixed. They're going to test it on on like animals but the first ones are going to be bad right yeah it's, yeah. it's just like you know c-sections cause some issues etc cetera, etc cetera, actually know? I'm, I'm gonna push back here i heard a theory on this that it was actually pretty compelling to me that it may turn out when we first start doing artificial wombs that the children coming out of them are actually dramatically healthier than children born from natural wombs because they don't have any restrictions on resources. And so even though they're not able to give people everything at just the right time, keep in mind this is an environment where the mother is basically never sick because they're not interacting with the world. There's there no that. restriction on the resources they're giving the kids. So it may be the difference we saw with the Flynn effect where like all of a sudden during a person's developmental period, they were given way way more resources than they ever would have been historically. And we're getting like 14 pound babies. <laughs> and what about babies that pop out and they can like talk? No, just <laughs> yeah, well, we, get, we gotta, we gotta aim for that. Actually. Oh God. So, so one of the things that I've thought about, and you can tell me this is crazy that I was like, okay, well, one of the things I suspect to happen as smart people become a rarer asset in the future and one that companies really need is that there will be a huge economic incentive for companies to create their own humans. And, you know, one of the things we're really actually trying to do as the Collins Institute is make child rearing at scale of like gifted children, like, like scalable and inexpensive. So like a company could implement this program without much human intervention, so long as they were producing people and caring for them in the first like three or four years of their lives. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, that just sounds like a small nation, right? Well, I mean, so I mean, yeah, I guess like, I mean, you you could do it as a company. You could do this, and I'm sure nations will do it as I well. I mean, it's like, it's basically the kibbutz system, right? Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, they didn't perfect basically. it. They didn't get it to work right. But that's, yeah, they're like collective raising of these children. Yeah. And they're all for the ends of the corporate. I mean, the yeah. idea is like they stay on the kibbutz, which didn't work out. Usually they Yeah, that's people. the problem. Yeah. But I mean, when, once you like can actually sort of genetically manipulate children, you can even like make them require some kind of proprietary enzyme that only you provide. They can't leave the premise. Okay, this is this is this is a, this is actually I think been written about, and there are films about these sorts of things, right? Where it's like <laughs> basically it's like yeah, you they have a, you know, it's it's like you know like Blade Runner, right? 
Yeah. Like they have yeah. Like, t- yeah. time bomb and that's mm-hmm. how you control them and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, is it possible? Yeah. Is it feasible? Yeah. But we might have, we, we, yeah, we might have to have a butlery and jihad. We'll see. <laughs> you know, whatever it takes. Yeah, just, you know what he's talking about? That was the jihad against AI, right? Against thinking machines. Yeah. But they also, yeah. they also, it's a jihad, a jihad also against like genetic, like a genetic engineering and other mm. things. Oh, they won't beat the genetically engineered. That's, that's <laughs> what they, what they, what, they show that Betty Jesuit don't use like official genetic entering. What they do is like is breeding, like you know, yeah, they use like selective breeding. That's what they yeah. do. Yeah. Um. Uh, okay. So so the uh, um, we were talking about ethnic groups like not going extinct. You're like, well, the Chinese aren't going to go extinct, but there are groups that I am genuinely afraid for. Like the two that I always mention are actually both in India, which is the Jains and the Parsi. I was wondering, are you worried for them? Are there other ethno groups that you're like particularly worried about? Or do you just not care that certain groups are going to go extinct? I mean, the Parsis probably, but I mean, they have some issues in terms of, uh, yeah, they have. So, I mean, so Parsis, as most of your listeners might know, are Zoroastrians in India. Genetically, they're about three-fourths Iranian, one-fourth Gujarati. And they've been Indianized in a lot of their cultural habits. So they speak Gujarati. They don't speak any Persian language, obviously. They eat Gujarati food. And they have, like, names that are often... I mean, they have names like Kushro, but they often have, like, you know, like Patel or whatever, whatever you know, or Gandhi. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, Indira, Indira Gandhi's husband was a Parsi. His last name was Gandhi. That's a Gujarati name, okay? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're kind of cool, but, like, there are other Zoroastrians elsewhere. And one thing that, one thing that the Parsis did is they integrated kind of, like, Indian caste system mentality and so they really frown upon intermarriage and outmarried children are kind of expelled from the group and that's one of the reasons they're shrinking Mm. so to be like an official parsi you have to have two parsi parents and this is actually like nothing to do with their zoroastrian religion it has to do with they're becoming indian and so it's just like yeah i mean but i mean that's just how that's how they're set up and it's just like kind of like you know with modernity and their their advances and their you know high like like yeah. You, you, you remind me of like a, a, a zoologist talking about pandas, <laughs> but we just can't get them to fuck in, in, in captivity. Like we're trying, we're trying, but they're fucking pandas. Well, it's um, interesting because that it suggests like that there's this certain like just right spot Goldilocks zone of xenophobia where like you 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 can't be like too xenophobic. Like if you like, you know, get too weird about marrying out, like it's hard to get enough people like critical mass and like keep going. But if you're not xenophobic enough, like then you're just gonna glom into like yeah. the main population. So you have to be just like just a little bit xenophobic, and then you're okay. Yeah. So you know the Jews in China disappeared because they intermarried out. Mm. The Jews in Kaifeng, if you look at them, they just they got assimilated into the Chinese system. Hold on, you have to go deeper here. When did the Jews immigrate to China? I am not familiar with this story. This is weird. Yeah, I mean, people can just Google the Jews of Kaifeng. They're probably like Radonite traders, so they're Persian Jews. Probably showed up around the Mongol period, if not earlier. The Chinese consistently had problems distinguishing them from Muslims, you know, because they worship one god. They didn't eat pork. All the other stuff is kind of like what, whatever, you know. Hmm. <laughs> so, like, they they would call them things like black hat Muslims or something like that. But like, they're really <laughs> Jews. That like they don't really know, you know. They're all like what weird. But yeah, so they show up in Kaifeng. They're well known. The Jesuits show up in the six in the late 1500s, and they encountered them, and they were super curious about them because these are Jews that didn't really interact much with Christians at all. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, "Oh, like you guys are gonna like 
have like the secret knowledge of how like Christianity is actually right, and you guys are hiding the fact that like Jesus was actually the Messiah. Anyway, there's some weird things like that. <laughs> so they were they were around for like many many centuries, and what happened is by the 18th century, the Jesuits that were um, the Europeans that encountered them had noticed that they they really had been assimilated since like the 1500s. Uh, like they looked much more Chinese. Like the original ones were like had West Asian features. A lot of them by the 18th, 18th century they were much more Chinese looking, and you know the local rabbi of the community he was super embarrassed because his chinese wife was was you know she had pigs in the front yard and he oh. knew that like the chinese don't care they're like whatever but he knew that the christian would be like wait <laughs> so oh, yeah. it was just like yeah but like uh, you know and his sons were had were in like the were chinese civil servants and stuff like that so huh. wow. what happened in the 19th century there was a flood the community scattered and they either like became Han, so they assimilated into the Han majority, or they became Muslim. And there are still some Hui Muslim families in like that area of China, and also Han families who know that they have the Jewish ancestry. Some of them have, have gone back to Judaism now. Wow. Uh, but yeah, some of them have like that it, is it, fascinating. Okay, <laughs> so, so to that end, because this is one thing you touched on, and I'm wondering what you're thinking about it. So we're talking about genetic isolation of populations. Do you see? intentional genetic isolation becoming more of a thing in the future, i.e. more, I don't want to call human speciation, but human like ethnic speciation becoming more of a thing as IQ is dropping in the general population. So, you know what? I think the speciation will happen. I think this is like pretty straightforward mm -hmm. when we get off planet. Oh, um, immediately. Yeah. I, I think basically like people are just like, they don't want to like go to, I don't want to go to fucking Mars. I don't care how tall and, you know, stretched out. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. of course, there's going to be like, you know, Bumble is going to be like interplanetary option. Like if you really like tall chicks, you want to go for a Martian. But the problem <laughs> is you better have some money to get all the way over there. Right. And is she going to be into you because you're like only six foot two? You know? <laughs> no, uh, but what I love is in this world, humans, we're the dwarfs. The ones who are yeah. on, stay on Earth are the short, stout, like stern boned ones. And the ones yeah. who go to Mars yeah. are the, the elf like people. <sighs> no, but people, I think, underestimate if, if it continues to be expensive to do interplanetary travel, which I think will be a thing for hundreds of years, that we will definitely have full speciation. Yeah. It's just so, it's so interesting. It, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because I, I spent the first, like, all my childhood assuming, because it was kind of like, I don't know, just assumed everywhere that I grew up, that everyone was just going to sort of become the same like goldenish color as everyone just interbred with everyone else. And and what I'm seeing instead is like everyone moving in the direction of glomming off in these more isolated communities, becoming more different from each other instead of all kind of the same. It's just yeah. so weird. And we then ran, of course, speciation is going to happen when people get off. We ran a big study on this. And one of the things that's most correlated with fertility rate, at least in the US, is xenophobia. Which means that we actually will likely preserve independent ethnic groups. It's just the opposite of what I expected. Like for the majority of my life, it's so weird. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue here is like also, if you look at a country like Brazil or Cape Verde, what happens is actually like even in like a genetically homogenous admixed population, there's still variation. Mm. So people will still look different. And so if they're sorting based on physical type, there will be like kind of like precipitation back out if that makes sense hmm. does that make sense and so it's not like I actually understand like, that oh explain precipitation back okay. out so they're selecting on like, like then that ends up precipitating into the community 
Yeah, or like in Brazil, it's known because in Brazil, a lot of families are of a mixed background, and it's not like weird to say that that's my white brother, that's my black brother, because they look that different. Oh wow! And, and there is there is some evidence that people actually start they sort based on what they look like, even though they have the same. So it's like there could be someone oh. who there could be someone who is like you know looks kind of white in a mixed race family. And they end up pairing with someone who looks kind of white in another mixed race family. Mm. So their ancestry is no different than the darker people, but their yeah. physical type because they're selecting on that subset. So it's positive assorted of mating. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because I mean, you guys are talking about IQ, but you know, physical things are also like pretty salient to people. Yeah. Um, and in a place like Brazil, there's like a skin color pre prejudice. And so people that are lighter skinned, you know, they have an incentive to pair up with people that are lighter skinned. Well, I think people just tend to like people that look like them often. I mean, not always, but it seems to happen where people similar to each other. Yeah, You're just thinking too much of me and Malcolm. Whenever I am at a party with Malcolm these days, I'm like, when I'm trying to like point to him, I'm like, oh, the guy who looks like my brother. That's my husband. Uh, works yeah, this is, this, this is, this is how, how we know you're autistic. Because like, <laughs> yes, people think that, but very few people say that. <laughs> <laughs> Autism confirmed. It works though. It works way better than you know my husband. He's over there. No. So, so do you think that when we begin to have genetically selected humans, do you think that we will have the possibility of a caste system, or do you think because I, I know you've talked about the caste system before, and I'm wondering like like once we can select for specific traits that are of utility to specific professions, like you know charisma versus stemminess. Do you think that like the only stable long-term iteration of humanity is a caste system? Or do you think that there's a way you could have this sort of selection without caste systems forming? Yeah. So I think like the Indian types caste system requires like a religious justification. Mm -hmm. the, the, the gene flow is so fucking low. Um, so I think a normal, like more like colloquial caste system does emerge. But I mean, if you read Greg Clark's work about social stability of like, you know, status and all that stuff, and that's a le legit thing there in the work, but there's still permeability. There's still people moving up and moving down and those sorts of things. Yeah. So I think that's going to be more likely just because I, you know, most human societies have not sacralized social status that way. Like India is the exception, not the rule. But if you mm -hmm. sacralize social status, like only those with like that blood can do that thing, then yes, it could emerge. So it depends on the religious aspect. Will you create a religion out of it? So I don't know if you saw this. There, there was a study on this that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, it was done in the UK. And, you know, in the US, we, we're often like, well, we're not descended. You know, if you're from a white US background, they're like, oh, we didn't have a caste system. And I'm like, bro, your, your, your last name is Smith and his last name is Weaver. And there was an interesting study that looked at people with the last name Weaver and found that they had higher dexterity, manual dexterity, even today. And people with the last name Smith had higher grip strength even today. I don't know if you've seen that one. I, th I thought it was interesting in terms of. Yeah, I think I saw that. And then also like, <clears throat> like people with these sorts of like, you know, you know, working class or blue collar artisanal, artisanal names are still mm -hmm. much more average to like below average and social status. And I mean, so what Greg Clark shows is, you know, what is it like the persistence of social status, like 0.8 per generation, which is pretty high. But so what happens is there's a lot of noise from one from generation not to generation one. And so people extrapolate from that. But what actually happens is there's often regression back to something that's more ancestral. And so I think the statistic is like so in 
in the year 1100, every single officer in the British army was basically Norman because they just hmm. replaced all the Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. Hmm. Like in the 20th century, 10% are Norman. Even though like less than 1% of the names in the British population That's are Norman. Fascinating. Wow. And Another... so from that, you can calculate, you know. Yeah, another study I heard on this that, that really was profound to me was looking at China and, you know, looking at the number of people in the Chinese government today, like high level Chinese government, who were descended from aristocratic families in China. And this is insane, because if you know anything about the Chinese revolution, these families were ground to dust. They lost everything and were treated worse than every other person in society. And yet somehow they all bubbled back. It was something like 80% of the people in high level positions of power came from an aristocratic family from the, the, the last dynastic period, which was just wild to me that even when they were, had everything taken away from them, society reassorted that way. And we've uh, seen this with like post-Soviet yeah. countries too, I think, right? Yeah. There's, there's, yeah. Or you are or you see like the descendants of the banking families in Florence from the 1400s or the Swedish yeah. like nobility in the 17th and 18th century, these sorts of things. Now, this doesn't mean that like we have like a fixed caste status. There are people that go up and people that go down. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, in a Malthusian environment, actually, a lot of people just went down. The lower classes didn't reproduce themselves. So that like, for example, Oliver Cromwell was like gentry but you know he was like he's one of my ancestors by the way <laughs> okay well he was his grandfather was super rich you know <laughs> and so like he like in his generation had gone way way down mm -hmm. and that was common in terms of like downward mobility and then like the lower classes just didn't reproduce themselves so obviously it's not like how it is today but still yeah. the point is people still go up people still go, go down but there's also like a rough like you know i don't know i mean yeah, it's just if you like look at people's family backgrounds, you can see that um, a lot of people have actually not moved as far as you would think. Like a regression you know? to a certain level of yeah. wealth. Well, and, and, and of course, these are things that can be changed now with genetic selection technology, which yeah. removes one of the biggest barriers in society to true equality. Sort of. Yeah, I agree. The only thing is, like, if everyone has access to it, then it'll just, like, change the baseline, which is okay. Well, I don't think it will. So everyone has access to it, but the groups that will use it, I think, are incredibly rare. I think if you look at the people who are actually having kids in our society, maybe 2 to 3% would really use this technology in mass. And I asked you, you know, before this interview, I was like, oh, the, the calculation for determining how quickly, you know, if we're creating about the number of embryos we're creating and we're selecting about the number of kids that we're selecting. And you did this for five generations. And then I looked at like the, the current technology and we should be looking at about a three standard deviation increase in IQ if you were selecting for IQ only. Which is pretty crazy that, that any any cultural group we have the we have that. we have the technology we have the technology today yeah yeah really cool which is which is wild and it it it's it's one of the things I think about where a lot of people who promote like oh you know we should be really accepting of people who are different and then I'm like oh I'm trying to create people who are different and they're like whoa 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 that's too different. <laughs> They would have a, oh, a lot, a lot of that is like, but a lot of that stuff is like, you know, performative, yeah. uh, normie conformity. Like when really weird people actually show up, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Actually, we had the episode that went live right before we were filming. This one was the episode uh, where I was going over Nasib Taleb's argument that IQ doesn't matter at all. Um, well, that it's a uh, like. What did he say? Made by Charlotte. It was just so performative. Like, yeah. I was like, come on, man. Like, you know this matters. Anyway. 
Well, I mean, you know it matter because he calls people fucking retards all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you imbecile! <laughs> destroyed. Destroyed. I love it. Uh, one thing I, I do wonder about is like what the selective pressures will be in the future in terms of gender. Like on one end, I see all these fundamentalist groups that are like getting super aggressive and also like probably encouraging a lot of differentiation between the sexes. But then like when you look at the more technophilic sectors of society or like cultures within society, they're like more blank slatist, like, no, there shouldn't be any differences between genders and whether or not they're actually are genetically, they're trying to pretend there aren't, maybe they'll try to select against it. Like, mm -hmm. Where where will the future of, of gender go? Or where is it even now? I yeah, so, yeah, so I mean with the trans stuff, one thing I will say, like I don't talk too much about it, but part of it is it is like modern transgender therapy, especially for children, is transhumanism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that's how you that's how you eliminate the gender differences. Uh you biologically go in and tinker. Yeah. You know? And so um that's how you would do it. And you can create homo androgynous if you want to. Uh, the main the main issue that we're having right now is, uh, I think, with the trans stuff, is the uh, mixing of um, normie brain with transhumanist technology. So mm. uh, I've said this elsewhere, but you know, I knew people who were transhumanists like 15 years ago, and they were mostly autistic. <laughs> but now, now these people they don't call themselves transhumanists, like you know, they're like gender fluid or whatever the hell. But like, but they're normie brained in terms of like now they're attaching identitarian politics to it. And that's the fundamental issue. Yeah, mm. uh, I mean. If you're talking about the genetic differences that would be caused by transness, you're actually going to see an increase in gender dimorphism between the two genders because of the men who are born thinking more like women and the women who are born thinking more like men are systemically removed from the genetic pool within mm. the progressive population. That means the progressive yeah. who are still breeding are eventually- yeah, We're selecting against androgynous And fembots. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay, yeah. so even among like progressive cultures where people like really welcome transness, even that's going to be selected against. Um, yeah, and as you guys know that this has been like research that goes back a generation. It's mm -hmm. just obvious like cultures that have like give a lot of freedom to gender expression often shake out to be more dimorphic in a lot of ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. in a lot of the in a lot of the non-performative visible ways. So men and women in Sweden may dress more similarly than men and women in Turkey, but women tend to major in much fewer STEMI things than in Turkey. Because they, yeah. This is a selective pressure, i.e. in societies where uh, it is more accepted that male and female roles aren't different from each other, that the women who have a biological predilection to take on more masculine roles end up having fewer kids, same with the men who take on more feminine roles, and that then doesn't select them out of the gene pool, leading to a higher amount of inborn gender dimorphism. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, you'd have someone have to like run the simulation. That's the way you would do it. Yeah, because like you know, we've had it since for Sweden. We've had it since World War II, right? The sort of kind of like super egalitarian viewpoint, and you know, ironically, you know, a lot of things are not as different in Sweden. Like, there's a lot of sexual, just like dichotomous behavior because men and women are different on average. That's just a fact. Yeah, well, and they're given the freedom to make those choices, and so they do. <laughs> Well, I mean, so also like, you know, one of the things that you see in like a lot of the conservative countries is STEM is a way for women to actually break out of the box. Because mm. if, they're, if they're a successful engineer, at the end of the day, people still need successful engineers. And so, you know, women's, women in a lot of these conservative countries, you see that they, they select STEM in particular, mm. not because like, 
oh, I have a passion for engineering, but they know that that is a path to social liberation that they otherwise would not have. Mm. Whereas in Sweden, you don't need to be an engineer to be like respected like a man. You know, you have equal rights, you know, at least nominally, at least like legally, you know? And so like in Italy, it, Italy during Mussolini's period, they privileged philosophy and the humanities over science. And so men tended to go into philosophy and the humanities and oh, wow. there were more, more women in STEM. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Why did they do that? I think they wanted to create like, you know, the fascist ideology. And so the philosophers, the philosopher kings were privileged, you know? Huh. Weird. So like yeah. scientists, so scientists are technicians, you know, that's what they thought. And oh. so STEM wasn't, STEM wasn't like high status there. Yeah. That's secretary work. Well, Interesting. I, I think their performance in the war shows how, how far that gets you. Um, <laughs> this has been a fantastic conversation. Honestly, one of my favorite interviews so far. I am so excited that we got a chance to chat with you. Please, please, please go check out his Substack. If you want detailed genetic information on humans, the spiciest stuff that you're not going to get at this level anywhere else, Unsupervised learning, guys. You know? And if you are interested and if you run any sort of genetics company, because actually our audience is like a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff like that, and you're interested in in cutting edge technology, Nerezeeb's a guy to reach out to. And thank you so much for joining us. And and also thank you so much for for all of the people you help in this space. Because I was mentioning on the last episode, you help so many young people in this space and it really makes a difference to them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I don't remember that, but you know, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah do. you don't see it that way. They- I, so he mentioned in the last episode, he's like, I really like babies. And I'm like, this is, again, not a thing that's known about him. He really likes babies. He is the most, babies. if there was some pronatalist polygenic score here, I need to capture it from his genome. I'm going to need to like have my descendants review it to try to find whatever makes him so into yeah, like best and, dad best dad yeah like unbelievable so yeah no um, huge fans obviously we love you so much Razib. thank you so much for coming on it was my pleasure i haven't